Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. So what we'll do is we'll go ahead and read the text, pray, and then we'll begin. Luke 22, verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation." Lord, you know how inadequate I feel trying to deal with this text that is so I can't plumb the bottom, and I don't know anybody in this world who can, Lord. But would you give us insight into the agonies of your Son? Would you help us to see how much it cost our Savior to pay for our redemption? Lord, would you make us even more grateful than we've ever been before that we have a surety a sin-bearer, a substitute for sin. So, Lord, please open up this text to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, folks, we need to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground when we come to this text. We are going to be following Jesus and his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to see what he experienced on this night. And I feel completely insufficient to be able to open up this text because it's past my understanding. Uh, only I wish Jesus could appear here this morning and tell us what it was like for him to go through this experience. Because I don't think I understand it. I, I can get a little bit of a, a glimpse and I can do my best to try to open up what I can understand from it. But may the Lord help us even further than that. Let's remember the context of this setting. Jesus has been very busy the last several hours. This is the Passover. And on this evening, he has been instructing his disciples and teaching them some really valuable truths. We have those truths over in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. All of those chapters were given to his disciples on this night. So Jesus has been patiently instructing them, teaching them glorious truths. We also have John 17, which was his high priestly prayer. On this very night, Jesus also has celebrated the Passover with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. He has washed his disciples' feet. And at the end of all of that, they sang a hymn. And then they departed and they deliberately went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And evidently, this was an olive orchard on the Mount of Olives with an enclosure around it, some kind of a fence. And inside of this enclosure was a press. So they would harvest those olives 
And then they would pit them and they would press them to get the oil to come out because they would use the oil for medicinal purposes and also for cooking. So here is a an olive orchard. Jesus goes to this place and he's been to this place many times before. It was a favorite place of his. In fact, Judas knows that Jesus is most likely going to go to this place because this is where they would spend the night often. So Jesus is not trying to escape from the authorities. If he was, he wouldn't choose Gethsemane because that's where Judas knows to take them. Jesus knows that his hour has finally come. It's time for him to be arrested. It's time for him to be crucified. The Passover is here. That was the day when the lambs would be slaughtered. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So it's now time for him to give up his spirit in death to atone for the sins of the world. So he goes to Gethsemane. He brings 11 of his disciples. Judas has already left. He leaves eight of his disciples near the entrance. And he takes three of the others with him, Peter, James, and John. We learned this from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And he takes Peter, James, and John in closer with him. And then he leaves them, and he goes goes a stone's throw further, maybe 50, 60 feet further than the three. And that's when he does business with God. And he kneels down upon the ground, and he prays fervently and in agony. This morning, what I want you to think with me about is something that occurs in verse 42. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's what I want you to think about, the cup. There was a cup that Jesus wanted God to take away. He says in another gospel, let this hour pass me by. There was a cup, an hour, that Jesus knew he was headed towards, but in his holy humanity, he shrank back from experiencing it. And I want us to meditate on the cup and try to understand what was in that cup that Jesus had to drink. He's recoiling in horror as he contemplates what's in that cup. And that's why I've entitled this message, The Horrors of Drinking the Cup. My outline's really simple today. Number one, Jesus didn't want to drink the cup. Number two, Jesus had to drink the cup. Number three, Jesus yielded to drink the cup. First of all, he didn't want to drink the cup. Let's ask ourselves this very straightforward question. What was the cup? (laughs) What was in the cup that Jesus didn't want to drink? Now, the Old Testament often uses a cup as a metaphor. It's symbolic of something else. And it's not always symbolic for the same thing. I'll show you that. If we go back to that very famous psalm, Psalm 23, that you probably have memorized. There in verse 5, the psalmist says, this is David, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So the cup here is a cup of God's blessing on him, right? The cup of God's goodness toward him. Okay, let's look at another. Psalm 116 and verse 13. I shall lift up the cup of 
salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So sometimes a cup can be a metaphor for salvation. Sometimes it can be a metaphor for God's blessing. But most of the time in the Old Testament, when the cup is used as a metaphor, it's used of of not blessing, not salvation, but the cup of God's wrath and judgment. Let me show you that. Psalm 75, flip back there. Well, you know what? Let's go back even further to Psalm 11. And then we'll go to Psalm 75. Psalm 75, or excuse me, Psalm 11, verse 6. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So what's in the cup? Well, in this cup, you've got snares, fire, brimstone, and burning wind. That's what's in the cup here. Now, go over to Psalm 116. No, I'm sorry. That's, I'm sorry. It's Psalm 75. Psalm 75, verse 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. This is not a good thing, because the wicked are forced to drink this cup. They have to drink it. All the wicked of the earth, and they have to drink down its dregs to the last drop. They've got to drink this horrible cup, whatever it is. Now, Psalm 11 says it's a cup that includes snares, fire, brimstone, and burning wind. Let's look over at Isaiah 51. Verse 17. Isaiah 51, 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Again, here the cup is used as a metaphor for the the anger of the Lord, the anger of God. Or then we have Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So we're starting to pick up a pattern, aren't we? This cup holds God's judgment, God's wrath, God's fire and brimstone and burning wind in it. But I want you to look at a final text. It's from the New Testament this time, and it's from the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Verse 10. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in false strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So this is the cup that the wicked have to drink. Notice how it describes it. It's the wine of the wrath of God. And and what kind of strength is it mixed in? Is it half strength? Quarter strength? Full. Now, how much strength does God have? He's almighty. This is the the wrath of almighty God. Now, it's one thing for you to face the wrath of one of us, another human being. And that can be very unpleasant. Think about facing the wrath of God. Who has, There is no limit to his power of what he can do. That's what the ungodly are going to face according to this text in Revelation. And it, that person will be tormented with fire and brimstone and the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. These are just the words of Scripture. That's how the Bible describes this cup. So when God presented this cup to Jesus, he understood something of what was in that cup. I believe this cup included all the sufferings that Jesus was going to have to embrace. It would include the rejection of his own people, the Israelites. It would include Peter denying him three times on that night. It would include the defection of all the other uh, disciples who forsook him and fled. Remember the scripture, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, that literally took place on the night he was crucified. It would include his unjust sentencing, the kangaroo court, who issued a, a guilty verdict for something that Jesus never did. It would include the scourging, where his body became like hamburger meat. It would include the mockery of the soldiers, the spitting, the beating, the pain of having nails driven through his wrists and his feet and a spear thrust through his side, the crown of thorns being placed on his brow, the pain of the crucifixion. It included all of that. But folks, that just is the tip of the iceberg, I believe, when it came to the real sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's just the outer. That's the physical and the emotional. But there's a whole other dimension that we typically don't think about very often, and it's the spiritual sufferings of Jesus. And I think that was what he was shrinking back from in horror as he saw what was in the cup that he had to drink, the spiritual dimension of his sufferings. You see, martyrs, thousands and thousands of martyrs have gone to their death, and they've borne it well. They've borne it patiently, even some singing praises to God as they were burned on, at the stake. So when, when human beings could do that, why did Jesus fall on his face again and again and cry out to God to save him and weep and perspire great drops of blood and be in agony when, when other human beings have never gone through that kind of torment? Why was Jesus in such an agony is my question. It's because Jesus faced something that no other human being ever faced. No other human being faced the wrath of God. Jesus did. Jesus bore it. You see, Jesus was our substitute. We have to understand what was happening at the cross. Jesus was our surety. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. 
But a surety is somebody who takes the legal responsibility for the debts of somebody else. That's what Jesus Christ did. He became legally responsible before his father for our debt of sin. He's like, a surety is like a co-signer. If my son were to call me up and say, Dad, I really need you to help me with this loan. I want to buy a home. Would you be a co-signer on my loan? Okay, so if I agreed to do that, that means that if my son ever defaults and stops paying his payments, I'm responsible. And I can be taken to court and I can be penalized if I don't pay that debt. Because I am a co-signer. I'm a surety. I must come through. Well, Jesus Christ becomes responsible for our debt. Now, now what debt are we talking about? Do you remember in, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray? He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive all those who are indebted to us. Now, what does he mean? Forgive us our debts. He's talking about the debt of sin. All of us owe perfect obedience to God, don't we? As his creatures, we owe him that. But yet none of us have rendered perfect obedience to God. We have broken his law time and again without number. So we have this great debt to God. And what we owe God is satisfaction to his justice for breaking his law and disobeying his commands. We owe satisfaction to his justice. And if we try to pay that, the only way we can pay to satisfy God's justice, if we are cast into the lake of fire and burn for eternity. And even then, we'll be paying on that debt and never get it paid. Because all we can do, we're finite creatures. We can't pay off the debt. That's why hell goes on forever. As horrible as that sounds, that seems to be the clear teaching of the Word of God. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and ever. It's, it's hard to even wrap your mind around this concept. So, if we were to try to pay off our debt, we couldn't do it. But thank God Jesus Christ was willing to step in and become a surety. He was willing to assume our debt and pay it off in full. And He could do that because He's not a human being. He's not a sinful creature. He's God in human flesh. And He's able to pay off that debt for us. Now, what is God's response towards sin? How does God view it? How does God react to sin? He hates it, despises it. God abhors sin. It is contrary to his holy nature. He cannot abide it, right? It provokes him to wrath. Now, you might think, how could that be? I thought God was just a God of love. How could, you're talking about God being angry? Well, you read, you, you heard what the scriptures we read, didn't you? you? You can't read for more than five minutes in your Bible without coming across passages that talk about God's wrath or God's judgment or God's hatred of sin. It's everywhere throughout the scriptures. And, and those people that try to just say, you know, God's a God of love. Don't, don't talk about hell. Don't talk about judgment. They're not being serious with the scriptures because the Bible's full of it. If you want to take this book seriously, you have to deal with those other concepts in there. God is a God of love. Oh, he is a God of love. But he is also a God of wrath. He is both. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So let's try to understand what's taking place. God made him to be sin on our behalf. He's the sin bearer. He's the one who is willing to have the sins of others laid on him and to be crushed under the load of God's wrath against those sins. Do you ever watch the movie The Sin Eater? There's real parallels between this guy back in the Ozarks who had this, you know, this belief that somebody had to eat the sins of others and take the, the payment and punishment of the sins of others. Well, Jesus is truly the sin bearer. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He became sin in front of God. God treated Jesus as the greatest sinner who ever lived. Now try to think, who is the most evil man who ever lived? We probably all got our, our choices, don't we? I'm sure Adolf Hitler is going to be in the top ten. <laughs> Maybe Osama bin Laden. Maybe Jeffrey Dahmer and other serial killers and rapists. and People who have done atrocious, horrible acts to other people. Wicked men. Well, take the worst man who's ever lived. That pales into insignificance compared with how, Jesus, how God treated Jesus. Because God didn't treat Jesus as just the most wicked man, but all of the most wicked men who have ever lived. Millions upon millions of sins were laid upon Christ. And he's been crushed under the load of the guilt and shame and punishment due unto him because of all the sins, of all the horrific sins that have ever been committed, if we can even wrap our mind around that. And so how does God have to treat his son when those sins are laid upon him? He hates the sin that is laid on Christ. And his wrath is provoked, his fiery indignation is provoked, and unmitigated fury without any mercy falls on the head of Jesus Christ, the substitute. Do you see? Do you see what's happening at the cross? The cross is no joke. The cross is no light thing. God's fury is leveled on his son as he's hanging between heaven and hell, bearing God's anger against our sins. That's what's happening at the cross. He's our surety. For all eternity, Jesus has enjoyed unbroken communion with his Father. There's never been a single moment in which they have not had this sweet communion and love relationship between the persons of the Trinity, right? And Jesus expresses a little bit of this in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Can you try to imagine the kind of love being experienced between the Father and the Son and the Spirit from times eternal, before God made anything else. There is still this beautiful love relationship. Well, what happens at the cross? There's a severance. Jesus cries out, "My no, not, notice not my father, my father, my God, my God. Why have you deserted me and abandoned me and forsaken me? 
He felt cut off. God was gone. He's on his own bearing this fury and anger against sin. And there's a cleavage now between the Father and the Son for the first time ever. And how did Jesus feel about the prospect of having going to go through this? Oh my goodness. Let's just read the text from other, other places in the Gospels. How did Jesus feel? Well, Matthew 26, 37. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Do you think Jesus is exaggerating for emphasis? He's telling the truth. His soul was deeply grieved to the point of death. That's how he felt. Or back in Luke, where we started, Luke 22, verse 44. Notice this. And being in agony. I don't think Luke is overstating the case or exaggerating what happened. This is the literal truth. Jesus was in agony. He was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, Luke is a medical physician. He's a doctor. It's no wonder that he describes, he's the only one that describes this situation. And it's a very rare medical condition known as hemotidrosis. When someone is under great stress or great fear, sometimes the capsularies of blood underneath the skin can burst and mix with the perspiration. And, and you can have this bloody sweat that comes forth from you. It doesn't happen very often, but occasionally it has happened, and medical doctors have recorded it. It appears that's what Jesus was experiencing. Try to imagine his brow, perspiration, clouding his forehead, and not just coming to his brow, but falling down upon the ground, and he's got this bloody sweat falling down on the ground, maybe on his shirt as well, he's soaking his shirt, and he becomes just this, this bloody, sweaty person as the, as the, under this great pressure and great stress and great fear. And you say, well, well, Jesus was God, why would he be afraid? I think at this point we're seeing it as his humanity. He, he is God, but he's also man. He's a true man, like us. He's a true human being. He's also a true God. He's got two natures in one person. And we're seeing the humanity of Christ showing forth itself. Absolutely holy and perfect, but yet he was a real person, a real human being with real human emotions. And they're coming out. Notice his posture. Luke says that he knelt down upon the ground. Matthew says he fell on his face. Mark says he kept falling to the ground. So he's on the ground. He's falling upon his face. Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says this. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Jesus was crying. He was weeping. He was crying out loudly, God save me. 
Let this cup pass from me, God. I mean, we, we have to take, we, we have to put ourselves back in our minds. Let's go to the garden. Let's watch him falling on the ground, sweating great drops of blood, weeping and crying and say, God, let this cup pass. That's what was going on. That was really happening to the Son of God. And you say, well, that seems awfully strange. It sounds like Jesus didn't know about the cup. Didn't he always know that he would come into the world to die for sinners? Yes, it it is true that he knew. He had been telling his disciples for months now that they were going to Jerusalem and he was going to die, right? We've read that in Luke several times. Over and over, this has been coming up. He said in John 3, 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, he was talking about being lifted up on the cross. And this was years. John 3 was years before he went to the cross. Jesus knew that he came to die. In Matthew twenty twenty eight, he says, just as the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life, a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, he said, this is the blood of my covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew about the cross. Well, then why this? If he was expecting it, anticipating it, knew that's where he was going, why does he react so? Why does he recoil in horror? I think it's because God was opening up to him a vision of what all was included in that cup and he saw it crystal clear. And I mean, he he knew he was going to die, but now he saw how he was going to die and what it would mean to him, what it would cost him to die for sinners. And he smelled the cup and God pressed the cup to his lips and he tasted it. And he says, remove it, take it away. I can't bear it, Lord. Please, if you're willing, take it away. If it's possible, take it away. I don't want to drink it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So yeah, he knew about the cup. But now he sees it in all of its contents, all of its horror. He sees what it's going to cost him to drink it. So first point, Jesus did not want to drink the cup. Second point, but he had to. He had to. We find that from Luke 22. Because he prayed, Father, if you are what? Willing. Remove this cup. Was the Father willing to remove the cup? No. He was not willing. Why not? Because before time began, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenanted together and devised a plan of redemption. This was God's predestined purpose and plan. God was not willing to change that plan. Jesus must become the sin bearer, the surety for us. Had to take place. It was God's sovereign will. Nothing can alter the sovereign will of God. Father, if you're willing, but you're not. He understands that he's not eventually. Over in Matthew, it says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass away. Problem is, 
It's not possible. If it's possible for sinners to be saved and I not have to drink that cup, let it pass away. That should tell us once and for all that there's no other way for anyone to ever have their sins forgiven and to enter into heaven except for what Jesus Christ did at the cross, right? It's not possible for you to be saved apart from what Jesus did when he accomplished our redemption at Calvary. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's impossible. People who speak about, well, I'm, I'm sincerely religious. I'm a Hindu. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Muslim. And I'm sincere. Don't all roads lead to God? No. There is one road that leads to God, and it's the atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for sinners. It's the only way you can get there. It's not possible to go to God any other way than through Him. Oh. So he had to drink it. God wasn't willing to change his predestined purpose. It was not possible for sinners to be saved any other way. So he had to drink it. But I love this next verse, verse 43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. No, it's, I'm not willing to change my purpose. It's not possible for sinners to be saved any other way. But I will come alongside you and strengthen you so that you can make it through this ordeal, my son. I'll send you an angel. Now, can you imagine the angels lining up before God saying, please let me go. <laughs> let me go. Let me be the one that strengthens the Son of God. I, I just wonder what it was like in heaven <laughs> when this assignment was being given out. But this is almost unbelievable. Here's the Creator being strengthened by one of His creatures. And why did God need to send an angel? I believe it was because Jesus was in danger of dying in the garden before He ever got to the cross. Remember He said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. The prospect of what this was going to cost Him was crush literally crushing the life out of Him. He needed someone to strengthen Him or else He wasn't even going to make it to the cross. And so God sends an angel to support him and to help him so that he can pay for our sins and redeem us. Now, how did that angel strengthen him? The Bible doesn't say. I don't know. I'm not sure if it was words, a message from the Father that he communicated, or some other way. But the important thing is that God strengthened his son at his greatest hour of need. And I thought about our lives in connection with all of this. A lot of times, maybe we face situations like Jesus, and we feel afraid, we are stressed, and sometimes we pray for God to change things, and God doesn't. God's not willing to change them, because it's not part of His sovereign will and purpose. Sometimes we must face suffering as Christians. Right? I mean, here in America, we think suffering is kind of a strange thing. No, no. Just go to any other place in the world and watch Christians suffer for their faith. So we, we can feel like Jesus sometimes. The heavens are brass above us. We lift our voices and cry, Lord, save my loved one. They have cancer. Bring them out of that hospital room. Bring them back home to me. And yet they die. 
Or we have an illness and we pray and pray and pray and we don't get better. Or we have a wayward child and we pray for that child to come home to God and it hasn't happened yet. What do we do? Sometimes it's not in the sovereign will of God to do the things we want him to do. But I do believe just as he strengthened Jesus in his hour of greatest trial, he will strengthen us in our hour of greatest suffering and trial. He will come to us. Let me just share a scripture from Isaiah 41 that is beautiful in this regard. It's Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Being a Christian doesn't mean we're exempt from suffering or from trials, but it does mean we have a God who will never leave us or forsake us. He will never desert us. He will strengthen us in the hour of our trial, even if he were to call us to die for him as martyrs. We can trust him to strengthen us in that hour. So Jesus didn't want to drink the cup. Jesus had to drink the cup. Thirdly, Jesus yielded to drink the cup. Because in prayer, he said, If you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Do you see that spirit of submission in Christ's voice as he prayed? And he didn't just pray this once. He didn't just pray it twice. He prayed it three times. After each time, he would come back to his disciples and he'd find them sleeping. He told them to keep watching and praying that they wouldn't enter into temptation. But they were sleeping from sorrow. He would go away and pour out his heart in agony. He'd come back. They're all asleep. They weren't even... (laughs) You get the feeling like in his humanity, he wanted them to to pray, to to watch, to, to be a support to him in this hour of his greatest trial, yet they're all sleeping. And he goes back and he prays, if it if it's your will, let it pass, but not my will. Let your will be done. He was very clear in prayer, wasn't he? His prayer petition, remove the cup. Father, remove the cup. That's my prayer. But yet he always added something to that. Yet, not my will. May your will be done. That was even more important to Jesus than being able to be released from facing the wrath of Almighty God was that the Father's will would be done. See, the Father could not remove the cup and still have His will done. So Jesus was willing, okay then, I'll drink the cup. That's why I think at the end of Matthew's account, In chapter 26. It says in verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. In other words, God is not going to deliver me from this. Get up, let's go. The betrayer is here. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He understood that. He got his answer from God 
I'm not going to take the cup away. You're going to have to drink it. And so he says, let's go. Let's get this over with. Jesus is the ultimate hero, man. <laughs> Do you ever watch The Passion of the Christ and you watch him take that, that scourging? I, I watch that and I just go, man, Jesus, there is nobody like you. <laughs> there is no one like our Lord. He is the ultimate hero. And he's an example for you and me. Sometimes we go to prayer. And we, like I just said, we desperately want God to do something. Bring back my child. Heal my mom from cancer. Lord, I'm suffering day after day in this affliction. Please take it away. But are you, are you able and willing to add, yet not my will, but yours be done? Are you willing to be resigned if God were to show you, I, I'm sorry, but this is no, it's not part of my plan for you. It's not part of my plan. I mean, that can be hard to know that I'm, like think of Johnny Erickson Tata, 15 years old, paralyzed from her, her neck down. It's not part of God's plan. At least it hasn't been for 40 plus years for her to be healed. She's been in a wheelchair ever since then. That's hard for someone to hear something like that. But are you willing to say, yet not my will, but thine be done? So the Lord wants us to cultivate this attitude of submission and yieldedness and resignation and to be willing to have his will paramount even over ours. See, what, what do we call that if we exalt our will over God's will? That's idolatry. We're making our will ultimate, Right? We become God. God exists to serve us and to do what we want Him to do. No longer are we the creature. Now we have become the Creator. And He is the creature coming to serve us. We've got everything backwards. We must look to Jesus as our example in this. And to be willing to be humble and submissive and yielded to the divine will. Whatever that will happens to be. And if the Lord shows us that it's not in his plan to do what we want him to do, will you still love him? Will you still trust him? Will you still serve him? Will you still worship him? Like Job. Remember old Job? Yet, even if he slays me, I'll trust in him, Job says. Good man. Good example. Let's, 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 let's cultivate that spirit of devotion to Jesus Christ. Now let's draw out a few applications and we'll be... We'll be through for today. One of the applications that comes to me as I look at Jesus in this garden is that this confirms to me the doctrine of eternal punishment. I know that the doctrine of eternal punishment, first of all, it's not a popular doctrine. Nobody likes the doctrine. And it has been questioned a lot as of late, the last 50 years especially. It has been questioned and it has been denied. There are two other doctrines that have been proposed for people who don't like this one. <laughs> one of them is the doctrine of annihilationism. That means that you're annihilated when you die if you're ungodly. You're just destroyed. You cease to exist. That's one. The other one is restorationism, which means that all people eventually are saved through the cross of Christ. Nobody endures God's eternal hell. They say that there, there may be a, a probationary, a temporary time of punishment, but that eventually all the wicked 
are released from that place of hell, and they're all brought into God's presence in heaven. Restorationism, annihilationism. Those are the two alternatives to the traditional doctrine of hell. But when I look at Jesus in the garden, if Jesus was paying what was due unto us, and what was due unto us is annihilationism, or restorationism, all people will be saved, it doesn't make any sense. Does it to you? That he would be in such an agony if that's all that mankind will face? It makes a lot of sense if Jesus was bearing the full fury of Almighty God that will burst upon the heads of unbelievers for all eternity. Then Gethsemane makes sense. It, it, it fits. It's consistent. And although nobody likes the doctrine of eternal punishment, I can't get around it. When I read my Bible, it just seems like that is the clear teaching of Scripture. And, and unless I'm reading my Bible wrong, Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you want to make God's punishment temporary, you've also got to make heaven temporary. It's not eternal life, it's temporary life. Because it's the same word used in both, in the same sentence. So that's the first thing. I think we need to realize what's at stake here. Eternity's at stake. Second thing, it teaches us the horrors from which God has saved us. Maybe this will cause us to be more thankful than we've ever been before when we contemplate what God has saved us from. He's the only perfect man who's ever lived. And as such, being the only perfect man who has ever lived, I would say he's got to have the most courage of any man who's ever lived. And yet the most courageous man who's ever lived is in so much fear and terror that he's sweating blood and crying, falling on his face, weeping, shrinking in horror. But because he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath, we can drink the cup of God's salvation. You can't drink the cup of salvation unless Jesus first drinks the cup of wrath. There is no salvation for you unless Jesus goes to that cross and bears God's fury against our wicked acts of sin. There is none. How much of the cup of wrath did Jesus drink? Did he drink half of it? and leave half for you to drink? Did he drink 99% and leave 1% for you to drink? He drank it all. He drank every last drop in that cup. Every last drop. It's like if you or I were to face a firing squad, and Jesus comes between us and the gunmen, and he takes all of their bullets in his chest. All the ammunition that they have is unloaded into his body, and we're free. When Jesus died, all of God's ammunition against sin was spent. It's gone. There is no more ammunition for you. Jesus took every bit of it. All of his arrows went into his heart. God has no more arrows against a true believer in Jesus. He's got no more bullets against a true believer in Jesus. He has taken... That's what he meant when he said, It is finished. I have taken it all. I've drank that cup. There's no more drops left. I've taken it all. 
That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus took the condemnation for you. All there is for you is justification and life and blessedness and forgiveness and pardon and adoption and redemption. God's love is like a mighty shower coming upon his church because the storm of God's wrath came upon him. It was spent upon him. There's no more storm left for the true believer in Jesus. And so I just want to encourage you, if you love Jesus, if you are a true believer in Jesus, go on to love him more. Go on to worship him more. Go on to adore him more. Serve him more. He's worthy. He is all in all. Exalt Jesus Christ, the surety, the substitute, the sin-bearing Son of God. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you today. Lord, even, even I've done my best to try to explain this, but I'm sure I haven't delved into the half of what, what you had to experience when you went to that cross. But Lord, we are so grateful that we have a Savior, such a loving, good, kind Savior. And Lord, we, we don't take for granted what you did for us. Oh Lord, lover of our souls, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.